If you would join me by taking out your Bibles and turning to the Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark, where after a 13-week break, we are back into our series, Jesus According to the Bible, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And as we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, indeed, as your people gather now in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. And so, Father, would you open our minds and hearts to understand and apply your truth for your glory and for the good of your people. And Father, we thank you that you have not left us to find our way, to fend for ourselves, but you've given us your word and your spirit. And so, Father, may your people now be built up and strengthened in the faith that you have given us as we feed upon your word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the next uh, time being, we are uh, not going to have to jump around the Bible too much, going from here to there as we learn how Jesus Christ runs his church, what church government is, and why it matters. We're going to camp out in the gospel according to Mark, and we're at sermon or message number 10. As you no doubt know, we are a mission church, and by God's grace, we will soon be organized as a separate and particular church of the Presbyterian Church in America. Now, the PCA is a confessional and a connectional denomination. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's take it in reverse order. First, we are connectional. We are not isolated and on our own. We have formal and informal relationships with other churches, both in our region through the presbytery, but through our nation and our continent, indeed the world, through our denomination, the General Assembly. And every month, I meet with all of my fellow PCA ministers in the greater Cincinnati area, and we spend about four hours together, two hours praying with one another and for one another, and also then spending time over a meal together. And this has been going on now for the last five years, and it has been a tremendous um, uh, instrument in developing unity and trust and enabling us to actually be connectional, not so much in the formal sense, but in the informal um, sense as well. But we are also connect, uh, confessional, We have a written confession of faith. Now, many of us know people, in fact, we may have said this at one time or another, no creed but Christ. No man-made creed but Christ. Now, that sounds good at first, doesn't it? But you first have to ask and answer the question, well, what is, is it that you believe about Jesus Christ? That's where our confession of faith comes in, our doctrinal standards are the Westminster Standards, and we believe that they are a good and accurate summary of what the Bible teaches about God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, about the Son, about sin and salvation, and the church. 
The Westminster Confession of Faith is 33 chapters. Our larger catechism is 196 questions and answers. Our shorter catechism is 107 questions. And even the children in Sunday school are working their way through the first catechism. And believe it or not, it has 150 questions and answers. But kids and adults, I've got good news for all of us. There's also the shortest catechism. Three questions and answers. Huh? Where's the shortest catechism? Well, my friends, it is before us in Mark's gospel. Because Mark's gospel will answer, ask and answer three questions. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should we respond to the person and work of Jesus? Now, the first few minutes today have got to be a review because it's been since November 22nd when we're last in Mark. And so bear with me as we navigate our way through a brief overview of Mark's gospel. Well, why study Mark? Well, in keeping with the shortest catechism, it's the shortest gospel, 16 chapters, 678 verses, believed to be the earliest gospel, the core gospel of which Matthew and Luke make tremendous use of. In other words, it's an ideal gospel to study and master. Wait a minute. We don't master it, to be mastered, as it were, by it. And with only three questions and answers, it's the shortest catechism. As we've been saying, today there is widespread ignorance and confusion regarding the identity of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, Jesus is speaking with some disciples and he says, it's all about me. All the scripture points to me. The prophets, the histories, the the law, it all points to me. Indeed, the Old Testament is Jesus predicted. The New Testament, Jesus is revealed in the Gospels. He's preached in Acts. He's explained in the letters to the churches. And he's expected in the book of Revelation. So here we are in Mark's Gospel where Jesus is revealed. And Mark has a purpose and aim. And you probably could guess what that is by now. He wants to make three things known. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how someone should respond to the person and work of Jesus. And if you ever find yourself lost in the Gospel of Mark, come home to this. This is the big picture of Mark. The opening line we read in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His book is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is orderly, deliberate, and purposeful in the organization and structure of his book. It's really two halves, and the first half answers the question primarily, who is Jesus? The focus is on the person of Jesus. And the second half, part two, answers the question, what did Jesus come to do? It's a focus on his work. And as we saw in our look at Jesus, our servant, a few weeks ago, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. 
And between the first half and the second half is the hinge. And it's in chapter 8, verses 27 through 29, where Jesus asks a couple of questions. Who do people say that I am? He asked another question. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, representing all of the disciples, says this. You are the Christ. Mark's gospel is the good news, according to Mark. Mark, we believe, is Peter's interpreter. He heard all of this from Peter, who was in Jesus' inner circle. So Mark, the man, he's Peter's interpreter. His method is a docudrama. He's assembling stories and snippets and videos and still pictures of Jesus' life and ministry and putting it together to answer those Three questions. And he has one message, the gospel. And that gospel is centered upon Jesus. It's about him and it's proclaimed by him. Jesus, the man, Christ, and the Son of God. We see Jesus carrying out his mission. And as we go along, we are hearing his message. We'll discover in a word that Jesus is the king who brings with him the kingdom of God as he announces in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Well, where did we leave off last time we were together in Mark? Well, last time we were together, we looked at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. And in chapter 3, verse 6, we see the good news is opposed. There is opposition to Jesus. There's a climax of sorts in verse 6 of chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Right here, we've got two poles of of Jewish leaders, both the religious the Pharisees, and the political, the Herodians, they're meeting in unity to destroy Jesus. And here, by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we have a complete rejection of Jesus by institutional Israel. It's no wonder Jesus says that the new wine he is bringing has to be put into new wineskins. The old wineskins would burst. And the wine would be spilled. Now don't miss the irony of verse 6. Here are men, in particular the Pharisees, who are outwardly devoted to honoring and keeping the law of Moses. And they're making deliberate plans to commit murder. And they're doing it on the Sabbath day, no less. Well, let's move into our text for today. And I was really excited as I was preparing this this message. Um, I was going to finally have the opportunity to demonstrate that it was possible that there'd be a two-point sermon outline. But after the bulletin went to print, not only did the, uh, the hymn of preparation disappear, but I realized that this was not going to be the text to prove it. Instead, I believe our text presents three areas that we need to be to give our attention to this morning. And for those of you that take notes and find that helpful, um, listen here. What we've got this morning is the problem of man 
verses 7 through 12, the plan of God, verses 13 through 15, and the people in the church, verses 16 through 19. The problem, the plan, and the people. Well, first, the problem of man. Join with me as I read chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Here's the ministry context. After his rejection by institutional Israel, Jesus withdrew. And now he begins to move away from simply declaring the truth to recruiting and building a new Israel, a new nation, a new people of God, no longer on the basis of physical characteristics, but rather spiritual ones. And in doing so, he'll choose the leaders of this new community. Next week, we'll see how he begins to describe and to define this new community, his new family. Well, you heard a lot of place names. You heard of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, Idumea, Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. Well, what's going on? Well, before it was just in and around Galilee, but now the crowds are coming from everywhere. As far as 120 miles south, they are coming from the four corners because they've heard of Jesus. And as you heard, there were diseases that they had and they wanted to heal. They wanted them healed. They wanted to touch Jesus. The geographical context is people are coming from all over. It's almost, just imagine in your mind's eye a crowd, no microphone, no podium, but just people who are desperate, moving toward a man who they believe can help them. And indeed, the human context is the pain and suffering of life. We've been learning through our catechism into what a state Did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought man into an estate of sin and misery. And these people are in an estate, a status of sin and misery. The great crowds are coming to Jesus because they want relief. They are desperate for relief and rescue. And indeed, the ministry of Jesus has given them great hope because so far we've seen Jesus preaching. In that inaugural um, kind of um, um, prototype sermon of the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And we've been seeing Jesus teach with authority that people say he is unlike anyone we've heard. He's teaching with authority. 
We've also been seeing Jesus healing. Healing people of diseases. Um, Think with me back to chapter 2. There is um, uh, the healing, the cleansing of a... uh, At the end of chapter 1, the cleansing of a leper. And in chapter 2, the healing of a paralytic. And remember that account. Jesus, before he heals him physically... He knows his greatest need is not physical healing. It's spiritual healing. And so he pronounces forgiveness. Jesus understands that what's greater than physical healing is spiritual healing is forgiveness. But we've also seen his compassion to continue to heal and to cast out demons. We've seen Jesus exercise authority over demons and unclean spirits. And each time thus far in his ministry, when they recognize him, he shuts them up. When they confess rightly that he is the son of God, he knows that it's not the right time for that kind of announcement to be made. One day, yes, but not now. His time has not come. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus is in complete control. He shuts them up. I was reading in Table Talk magazine the other day that when it comes to the demonic and the spiritual forces of darkness, you know, people have generally two responses. One, to not believe it. On the other hand, to overestimate the power. And I thought Table Talk did a nice job in reminding us that though The powers of Satan be great. The powers of Jesus are far greater. Friends, rest. Rest upon that. Whatever trial or difficulty you're going through, Jesus has authority. Jesus is more powerful. But man has a problem. He's in a state of sin and misery. But... Man's problem is not a problem for God because God has a plan. God has a surprising plan. Look with me as I read verses 13 through 15. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The surprising plan of God is to form a new people of God. Earlier we heard of that significant Old Testament event on Mount Sinai from Exodus 19 where God's people were going to be his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a special people. And here Jesus, a new Moses, a greater Moses, is going up on the mountain to start to constitute a new people of God. Mark is showing us that Jesus is calling out a new people of God, a new Israel, for Jesus is greater than Moses. And we heard in this, these verses that this plan of God, we'll see, is a two-part plan. It's not an either-or, but it's a both-and. 
But as we will see, there is a necessary, logical, temporal order. First one, then the other. Look with me at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. My friends, here is the sovereign call of Jesus. It's his initiative. He called to him and it's his choice whom he desired. It's Jesus' call. Other rabbis had men approach them and say, hey, can I be your disciple? Can I follow you? Doesn't happen with Jesus. He calls his people. He takes the initiative. The choice is his. But notice that this sovereign call is absolutely effective. Look at verse 13 again. And they came to him. He called, they came. Now, wouldn't this be great in parenting? I mean, what about boss and employee? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't this just be great that you speak and it happens? With Jesus, it does happen. He calls, they come. They come to him. They don't come to a program. They don't come to some movement. They come to him. The effective or effectual call of Jesus. And they came to him. And it goes on, we read in verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Well, Why did he do that? Our text answers, so that they might be with him And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed 12 for a purpose. In order for them to be with him and in order for them to be sent out. Called in to be with Jesus. Called in to be with Jesus. My friends... Some of you have heard of these words of the transcendence of God and the eminence of God. God's greatness and bigness and then God coming near and his intimacy. Here we have the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Calling men to be with him in an intimate, personal relationship. Just Let that sink in for some time. To be with Jesus, but not only to be with him, but to be sent out by him in order to be a witness for him. Not to go out and establish a program, but rather to go out and proclaim the message that Jesus is proclaiming and to bear witness about him. A person. This is the mission of Jesus and of his people. What did Jesus do? He called in and he sent out. He called in to himself and he sends out on behalf of himself. 
And what do God's people, what do people who follow Jesus do? What, do, what does the church do? I mean, here we see ministry philosophy 101. Here we see, you want to be a biblical church? Call people in to faith in Jesus and send them out to witness, to share the good news of salvation in Christ. Calling people in and sending them out. Now, this is foundational for the church. Why? Because it's the apostles upon which... The church is founded, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The foundation is the prophets and the apostles, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. It's not only foundational for the church, but it's formative for the church now. And we sitting here today, or standing here today, we are the results of this calling in and sending out. This plan, as you see, involves people. Well, what kind of people? Those people who are brought into and who become part of the church. Look with me at verses 16 through 19. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. That is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here is the apostolic foundation. And we are building upon that foundation. And we are, as it were, the walls and the the, the living stones that are being fitted together upon this foundation. Well, let's ask ourselves, what kinds of people? Well, they're apostles, right? Right? Super, well, wait, let's look at all kinds of people. Um, let's just look at a few words now that describe the whole. These are ordinary men, ordinary Galilean Jews, Ordinary, they're known and unknown. Yes, there's the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, but how, when was the last time you thought of Thaddeus, huh? Or Simon the Cananean or Simon the Zealot? When did you think of them? Bartholomew? What did he do? He was called in to be with Jesus, he was sent out to be an authoritative witness. Indeed, the word apostle means sent out. Known and unknown. There are some nobodies and some somebodies in this group. Peter thought he was a somebody for quite some time. He got humbled. Another apostle by the name of Paul comes along who was abnormally born, who nonetheless is a, an apostle because he meets the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He thought he was somebody. But as our quote in the something to think about, quote, God is pleased to use nobodies and somebodies when they renounce dependence upon themselves and entrust their lives to Jesus. Ordinary men, nobodies, somebodies. Indeed, you've got in this group a traitor to the Romans, Matthew, the tax collector, and you've got a revolutionary 
Simon the Zealot. In his book, Love in Hard Places, D.A. Carson writes this, quote, The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That's what this band of apostles became as Jesus patiently taught them, worked with them, forgave them, instructed them, and that's what they became when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Natural enemies who ended up loving one another and indeed loving the lost on account of Jesus. The one thing that kept them together. He was the glue. He was the center. It was their relationship with Jesus that defined their relationship with one another. That's this list of names here. But you know what? We have a church directory And most of us, if you're like me, at times you think about only yourself and you're looking out for number one. And here God is binding together and gathering together a variety of people who on the street, as it were, would be natural enemies because we were competing against each other. But here... The competition is gone unless it's the competition to outdo one another by showing love and honor to one another. I am so thankful that the Lord is pleased to gather all kinds of people here at Grace and Peace. Because unity is found in one thing, in the person of Jesus Christ. And does doctrine matter? Absolutely, because Jesus says it matters. What you believe about Jesus absolutely matters And so we've seen a problem, a plan, and a people. Well, what should we take away? Well, there are a lot of things that we could take away from this passage, but I just want us to remember really two things in particular. Um, First, the church is where the action is. You know, I've got friends that want to get in on the action. Well, I'm trying to help them see that the church of Jesus Christ is where the action is. Because a biblically sound and a spiritually healthy church is dynamic because you've got two forces in operation and at work. People coming in and people going out. People coming in to be with Jesus and then people going out to be with people pointing them to Jesus. Now, my friends, I want you to be encouraged that every time you take a meal to a family in our congregation that needs a meal, you are going out. Every time you pick up the phone and call someone and say, how can I pray for you? And really pray, you are going out toward one another. When one day maybe we send a team overseas, we are going out to tell people about Jesus. But don't 
Don't think that you're not going out by going to your neighbor, the neighbor that's around you here. Because we are called to come in to be with Jesus and we're called to go out to point people to Jesus. And my friends, as I was with a couple of men from Grace and Peace yesterday morning, I need you guys to help continue to point me to Jesus. We need one another. So the church is where the action is. People coming in and people going out toward one another. But secondly, remember that the church is composed of chosen people. Chosen to be with Jesus and chosen to be sent out on behalf of Jesus. We are called in on the basis of grace, not merit. We are chosen people, but my friends, we are not choice people. Look in the mirror. Look, we are not choice people. God did not go down the supermarket aisle and pick out the best apples. It's what he tells Israel. Why did I choose you? Not because you were the most numerous or beautiful. I chose you because I did, because I loved you. That's why we're chosen. And this is humbling to the nth degree, but it also brings security, doesn't it? Because God's love is so much greater, but in some ways like a parent's love for a child. It's not based on performance or strengths, but it's based on the relationship. And we have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, self-understanding is at the very root of what makes Christians different. We are humbled to the core and we are emboldened at the same time. Why we're here is not because of us. But now that we are here and being sent out, we have the power and the presence of God with us, as he says in Matthew 28, to the end of the age. Not only are we called on the basis of grace, but we are called into community. Not just an individual relationship with Jesus. Jesus did not disciple in a series of one-to-one you know, discipleship appointments. No, he discipled a corporate community. These 12 men that lived with him, ate with him, slept with him, worked with him. Saw him at night, saw him in the morning. He created a new community, a new family with him at the center then. And he continues to build a new family with him at the center now as he is present with his people by his spirit. Oh, my friends. What kind of people are in the church? Ordinary people. Nobodies, some bodies, but when they've cast off the notion that they're something special. Yeah, they are special because they're chosen. They're chosen because of God's great love. Indeed, as we heard this morning, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amazing love. How can it be? That God would die for us so that we would live. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you.
We thank you for this brief look into the earthly ministry of Jesus. When the problem of a desperate people was met by your plan, your plan to proclaim the gospel so that lost men, women, boys, and girls could be restored into a right relationship with their creator through Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that you are pleased to gather all kinds of people now. And one day we will see the full extent of the church that will be before your throne, glorifying you and enjoying you forever. Lord, may that be the case in this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, we are called in.